This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello and welcome back to The Real Thing. We are back now for season two. That's so exciting. We're ready for a new semester, a new program of awesome films from Bergen Film Club. I'm excited, as are many other people, I'm sure. So let's go. I'm Joel Lawrence. I'm the host of this podcast. Have been for some time now. Hopefully we'll keep being it in the future, as long as I don't get kicked off by the board. Um, <laughs> as mentioning said board, this podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, where we explore the themes and topics around the films in the upcoming program, which is autumn 2023. Like every episode today, we have an amazing film to talk about. But firstly, I would like to introduce our guests that we have today, the the Real Thing alumni. You two are both the most featured guests on the podcast. In fact, Let's so go. we have Carolina Tombeck and Bendifixness. Hello. Hello. How are you we... guys doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Hmm. And I think I am here on this podcast today because I am the only one in the Bergen Film Club board who is intellectually capable of separating artists from artistry. <laughs> so I am actually capable of enjoying Army Hammer's performance in this film. And that is why I am here, to balance out <laughs> the aggression from the rest of you. What do you, we wouldn't have shown the film if we didn't manage to separate the two. <laughs> That's irrelevant, irrelevant, Colina. That's irrelevant. Okay. I don't think I have aggression. I'm I'm okay with it. I've made my peace with him okay, being a cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can forgive anyone <laughs> if they're hot enough. <laughs> Before we get into the, the meat, the main part of the episode, uh, as always, I like to talk about some some recommendations, some stuff that we've been listening to, watching. Um, I know that I have mine. Would you two like to give some recommendations of your own? I, I have two. Go for it. Should I go for it? So the first one is this TV series and just like that. Yes. Season two has started. It's a hot mess. Uh, for those who don't know, and just like that is like a sequel show to Sex and the City. So we still follow the same gang, except Samantha. I think this is the first time after season one, I watched a show and been like, oh, this is what people mean when a show has gone too woke. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I don't don't want to say too woke in that sense. There are some like interesting characters that have been added and it's it's fun but it's like it's it's so cringe the way they do it yeah it it feels like why are you doing it this way 
this must be a joke. <laughs> it's like one of those, I know it's a train wreck, and but I can't look away. I, I have to know. Mm. That's <laughs> the best kind of show. Yeah, so if you yeah. want to see something silly and a bit cringy, uh, and think back to like how great the show Sex and the City was, yeah. And cry about it a little bit. That is so bad now. You should watch and just like that. And uh, my second suggestion, I don't need to talk a lot about this. It's uh, the third Magic Mike film. Magic oh. Mike's Last Dance. Sexy. <laughs> I um, love Magic Mike. I can't explain it. <laughs> but the films are so fun and just, yeah, incredible uh so yeah it's my on my top five 2023 releases this year oh wow yeah it's um all i'm gonna say is i believe in Channing tatum supremacy yeah and with that we can say that this will be the last episode joe lawrence ever hosts of <laughs> the, the real thing if Channing yeah, tatum true, is the thing that takes me down that's okay <laughs> I'm fine with that. If Magic Mike ends my career, that's okay. Okay, yeah. Bendik, what do you have? Mm, I was trying to go through what I've seen recently. Um, I saw a pretty good creature feature from the early 80s called Alligator. It was surprisingly well-written. Cult classic. It's recently been restored. Um, not the best effects, you know, the alligator changes size frequently, but uh, overall it was a pretty gory and fun time with uh, Robert Forster in a great leading role. Uh, I also saw a delightful TV show on Disney Plus called American Born Chinese, which I thought mm. was excellent. It takes, it borrows from Chinese mythology, such as the Monkey King and all that stuff, and it sets it in an American high school where this American-born Chinese uh, kid goes, and then he meets this other this Chinese kid who comes from China, and this Chinese kid has magic powers, and then they get involved in this Stranger Things esque plot mm, yeah. with really good kung fu fighting and wire work, really well done and very charming. It has uh, both the main characters from Everything Everywhere all at once, and one last thing, uh, Gunnibal a horror TV show on Disney oh, Plus. Yeah. Gunnibal with a G, G-N-A-N-N-I-B-A-L. About this police officer. It's a Japanese TV show and about uh, this um, police officer who goes to this little quiet mountain village to be the police officer after the previous one disappeared. <clears throat> and then he starts to suspect like a conspiracy in the village involving cannibalism and a lot of sinister mm. stuff. It's really really good i was well, I'm, I'm begging for a season two and they haven't mm. renewed it yet but those episodes that are out there now on disney plus fantastic uh i have a podcast recommendation a podcast that i've spoken about before but it's last podcast on the left it's a true uh, true crime podcast but I wasn't like, when I recommended it last time, I wasn't really like listening to it. Like I have my podcasts that I like fall asleep to um, because I ran out of episodes of My Favorite Murder, another true crime podcast. And then I started listening to this. But now I've actually been listening to, um, like they do different series about like big serial killers uh, or like big 
crimes that have happened. So, so far I've listened to like Eileen Warnos, um, John Wayne Gacy and John Benet Ramsey. And it's just really great. It's really, really well researched mm-hmm. and they are very funny guys, which is like, I guess, kind of morbid, like the stuff that they're joking about, especially on the John Benet episode. Oh no! I was about to say, or John Wayne Gacy. How do you make? How do you make that? I funny? was. I, I listened to that. I mean, today. he's a clown. That, yeah, he is a clown. He's a clown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and I think, uh, I think you would really like Appendix because they're they're not afraid to uh, stray from the woke uh, narrative. Oh, I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> but it makes compliment me laugh me. so much. Yeah, it. it I what? find it so funny. What are they called? Did you say the last podcast on the left? Last podcast on the left. Yeah, I remember yeah. you plugged it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's it's a weird. Really great podcast. I really, really, really recommend it. Now that I'm actually listening to it, I can confidently say that it is good. It's, and it's also great to fall asleep too. Apparently, my second recommendation <laughs> is I saw uh, Insidious Five, the Red Doll, oh, last week. Was it good? I really really enjoyed the first 80 percent of the movie and then it's so clear that there was like massive studio interference with the end mm. which sucked because then the ending was bad and really rushed and i was so disappointed because it's almost like i felt like the film could have been like 40 minutes longer it ended so quickly oh which was so disappointing and it was like everything was building up so nicely and it was really good jump scares really good like like it was more of like the relationships relationship side of it rather than scary scary which i really enjoyed like the dad having like memory fog because he had his mind erased and it was really cool and then at the end it was just terrible so i was very disappointed by the end which sucked um but it's been doing very well in the box office which is nice um but this has driven me to rewatch the first two and they are great. So I I think I'm just going to recommend the entire Insidious franchise because yeah. those films rock. He is I'm not even sure him. if I've watched them all. I've watched one. Oh, I know I watched one. I, think I watched so good. one about the old lady. Like the drag queen? <laughs> no, not the drag queen. The, the old lady, the, um, the medium, the spiritual medium or whatever she is. She's oh, in the yeah, first that's... one. Yeah, that and might then... be the third one. Is that the third one? Okay. Yeah, because the second episode, the second season, uh, film is about like this man who dresses up like a woman and is haunting Patrick Wilson. Uh, oh, I don't yeah. think I watched that one. But that one's really good. It's exciting. Um, but I think it like, you know, for what they like kind of brought back horror to the mainstream like that and Sinister and The Conjuring of that time like I feel like there was sort of a dip and then they were like hey we're back now and I think that gives them like a real staple of where they are in cinema history and that's really cool I've gathered you all here today to talk about Bergen Film Club's opening film for the new semester the amazing Luca Guadagnino 2017 Call Me By Your Name so I'm gonna start by just offloading the plot, and then we can talk about it. Let's go. Go. Whoa. <laughs> so 
We begin in somewhere in northern Italy in 1983, and we meet Elio Perlman, a 17-year-old Jewish-Italian-French boy who's living with his parents in northern Italy. Elio's father is a professor of archaeology, and he invites a 24-year-old Jewish-American graduate student, Oliver, to live with the family over the summer and help with his academic paperwork and studies. Elio, who is an introspective bibliophile musician, initially thinks he has little in common with Oliver, who appears confident and carefree. However, as time goes on, Elio seems to grow increasingly jealous of Oliver's connections with others rather than himself. Over the course of the beginning of the film, they begin to spend more time together, going for long walks into town and accompanying Elio's father on archeological trips. He is increasingly drawn to Oliver, even sneaking into Oliver's room to smell his clothes. Elio eventually <laughs> confesses his feelings to Oliver, who tells him they cannot discuss such things. Later in the film, they kiss for the first time. Oliver is reluctant to take things any further, and then they don't speak for several days. Whilst this has all been going on, Elio is also dating uh, Marzia, who is this one of his female friends, and they have sex. And then he kind of leaves and goes and writes a note for Oliver to try and end the silence. Oliver writes back and asks Elio to meet him at midnight and they agree and then they have sex. Afterwards, <laughs> Oliver says to Elio, call me by your name and I'll call you by mine, which is the title of the film. Uh, the morning after, Elio is briefly kind of conflicted about their encounter. There's also a really kind of gross but funny scene when he sits down at the breakfast table after they sleep together, sort of wincingly sits down at the head of the table. Um, and he's so kind of frustrated and conflicted about his feelings here that he takes all of his sexual frustration out by masturbating with a peach. When Oliver finds him, Elio cries about how little time he realizes he and Oliver have left together. Uh, eventually, Mattia comes back, confronts Elio about not hearing from him for three days. And then he basically is like, uh, anyway, I'm going to go. As the end of Oliver's stay approaches, Elio's parents, who appear to have been aware of the bonds these two have been making, recommend that he and Oliver visit Bergamo uh, together before Oliver returns to the U.S., they spend three romantic days together, and then he leaves. Elio, completely heartbroken, calls his mother to come pick him up from the train station, take him home. Marzia is then kind of sympathetic to Elio's feelings because she was kind of rejected in a similar way, and then says that she wants to develop a friendship with him. Elio's father then delivers this gorgeous speech after observing his son's unhappiness, telling him that the friendship relationship that he and Oliver had was rare and he envied Elio because he was never able to have that what the relationship that they had during Hanukkah Oliver then calls Elio's family so this is a couple of months after the events of the film to tell him that he is now engaged to be married to a woman he's been seeing for a few years Elio is very upset by this but then says on the phone to Oliver call me by your name call me by mine then they do and Oliver says that he remembers everything after this call, Elio sits down by the fireplace and stares into the flames, tearfully reflecting as his parents and staff prepare the holiday dinner. Now really, nobody um, has to watch it when they no. come to our premiere. Exactly. I think it comes out after. I think this comes out afterwards. 
Okay, um, then it's fine. Yeah, the twenty eighth. So where you're just sitting there thinking, "Oh my god, he's spoiling the entire plot of the film." He's spoiling the whole film. Holy Dare shit! Me. So, in terms of styles and themes, Guadagnino, Luca Guadagnino, who is the director of this film, I would say that this is absolutely his second best film. Uh, he described mm. "Calling by Your Name" as a family-oriented film for the purpose of transmission of knowledge and hope that people of different generations can come together to see the film and that he doesn't necessarily see it as a gay movie but a film about the beauty of a newborn idea of desire unbiased and uncynical reflecting his motto of living with a sense of joie de vivre. we should always be very earnest with one's feelings instead of hiding them uh, or shielding ourselves and he considers it an uplifting film being who you want to be and finding yourself in the gaze of another and finding that reflected back to you so i think that's pretty i don't i don't know that i would say it's an uplifting film for me but no <laughs> i also don't know if i would watch it with my family yeah I don't, what, what is it with you guys and not considering this an uplifting film i'm, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually um, mm. um but maybe we can start with when did you watch it colina when did you watch it for the first time uh, I, I watched it like the summer of either 2017 or 18 mm-hmm. and uh, I cried so much <laughs> uh, and I was like around Elio's age as he is in the movie when I watched it and just like I had this like very sad but also longing feeling of that kind of love it's like I yeah I just thought it was beautiful and heartbreaking and I just every time I thought about it I cried a little bit (laughs) because it's just yeah it's so beautiful and I also watched La La Land the same day which was not a good idea (laughs) so it was like a (laughs) two movies about letting go of love (laughs) yeah I know that was that was stupid of me (laughs) But I thought La La Land would be like a bit uplifting since I was sad. <laughs> well, it is it for about two thirds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, but yeah, I cried a lot while watching it. I thought, yeah, it's it's sad and beautiful, but also in a way hopeful, I think. But yeah, hmm. it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I watched it at the... Um, premiere at Biff, oh. in uh, which, for those who don't know, is Bergen Film Festival. Um, I think it was the um, like official Norwegian premiere, like a pre-premiere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard good things, and I watched it. And like uh, Kaolina, I also cried to uh, at the end. And walked up, but I I felt it was still an uplifting kind of event. I thought I I was definitely my favorite film of that year. I loved it. Um, I think it, I may have watched it twice in the cinema. Hmm. And then I also showed it to my brother that Christmas when I came home. I um, um, for Christmas I, I showed it to him. My father came in and he watched about uh, he watched about ten minutes. He remarked. Hmm quite an age difference between those two and he left <laughs> no way don't get me wrong like he, he's not uh, homophobic or anything he was strictly speaking about the age gap <laughs> <laughs> thank you for clarifying <laughs> yes mm-hmm. yeah we love bendex out on the podcast 
Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was my experience. I, I loved it. I, I'm sure we'll get into why we like the film, but uh, mm. I thought it was um, thought it was great. It um, yeah, it, it 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 hits you because most people have at a certain point had those kinds of uh, you. Everybody has experienced a crush or falling in love or whatever, and realized it won't work. And yeah, gone through what Elio goes goes through in the film. So it's very, it's a film that can hit everyone. Mm-hmm. Which is why I, I understand what Luca Guadalino was talking about, about trying to make it a movie for everyone, because it's not strictly a gay film. There's not that much sex in it. No. There's eroticism, and there's skin mm-hmm. and desire, but there's no that. It's not that much graphic sex. The camera always pulls away. Yeah. I guess the only scene that would kind of make me not want to watch it with my parents is the peach scene you would be totally okay with the short scene (laughs) the short scene yeah that's not that bad he just sniffs the shorts yeah that's fine (laughs) okay yeah he's just overcome with uh, lust yeah (laughs) (laughs) he is he is just overcome with lust (laughs) that's what he is yeah yeah I've seen it. I've only seen it twice. Uh, I saw it in the cinema in 2017, I guess November 2017, I think. And it made me very sad because I was at the time currently super in love with someone who could never love me back. And (laughs) it, yeah, it like definitely hit hard. And also I was like, um, pre-exploring any like homosexual part of myself I guess so I kind of like had this sort of wonder about the film but also in a way that kind of like sad that I'd never had that experience in a way so I it made me sad for a lot of reasons and I thought that the like it was one of the best sad endings that I've seen in the film because it was so like bittersweet enough for interpretation in a way that yeah, but I found it super beautiful. I was like, I'd never really seen a film like this. I'd never seen a Luca Guadagnino film before or like his style of directing or his camera work and stuff. And I think he's very good. And yeah, just there, like I said, like nothing that I'd ever seen before and I thought it was amazing. And then I watched it like a year later with a friend of mine and it fully made me sad for like three days. Like, I remember there was, like, a three-day period when I was just, like, wow, life is terrible. I, I don't, Elio I don't, can't be with I, Oliver. That's so I sad. don't get that. We can save that discussion to once we reach, like, the like where we talk about the ending. But, yeah, I don't get it. We, we I don't get why people think that is a tragic end. It's, it's, to me, it's something else. I just think you really, like... So the film is obviously told really through Elio's perspective and the book even more so you're like you're like really getting into his thoughts and mm-hmm. his understanding of the situation and I read the book in between my first and second watch the book is great by the way if you have not read it um, yes I haven't uh, but it is uh, my father has it, it so I oh, want yeah. to read it it's, oh, uh, it's at should. home in Venezuela yeah yeah it's very like a lot of heavy emotions i feel it's like uh it's 
a lot going on, a lot to feel and think about. Because mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. one of it's like the same. Uh, I guess I want to compare it to Worst Person in the World because that's also a film that had like an enormous emotional impact on me. Is I think it's a film that really makes you like reflect on yourself very very much because mm-hmm. you kind of can't. You're like watching them fall in love and then kind of realize that you, you can't help but have that reflected onto yourself and thinking about your own mm. situations like that as well so i think yeah i love being sad so that's probably why <laughs> i was sad <laughs> it kind of reminds me when i watched it i rewatched it on monday in preparation for this podcast uh very good and it kind of reminds <laughs> me of yes i always bring it i always you come do. prepared i do Unlike you two, who haven't watched it in years, but okay. I didn't feel the, like the memories. I didn't feel it like impacted it. me so much. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it reminds me of the um, before trilogy, Richard Linklater's before trilogy. Mm. Kind of mm-hmm. has the same uh, same vibe. Um, uh, the Ella, Call Me by Your Name takes place over one long summer, and it kind of it feels like those summers you hear when you're uh, you experience when you're a kid hmm. um, or not even a kid, maybe like a teen and maybe even older, those endless summers that before you, before you had work or whatever, the summers that just went on and on and on and you just kind of drifting through them. And um, that's what the movie kind of evokes to me the sense of one long, wonderful summer mm-hmm. in Italy. And then you have the, the element of time, like even a long summer will eventually end the same way mm-hmm. their romance, once it starts, heads off to the, its end stop, which is the train station where they yeah. separate. The same way the Before Trilogy also deals with time. It takes place in very like constricted spaces. They always have time mm-hmm. chasing them. They have a mm-hmm. limited time to get to know each other or to fall in love and like most people will um be able to relate to that that the good times sometimes they will end and sometimes you just feel a you get dragged towards the end stop and you don't want to go and um real that's why i like the that's why i like the film i think because it's gives you such a good feeling and it it's even a little bit too slow at times but i think that's deliberate on Luca Guadalino's part that he wants it to feel endless until yeah. it suddenly isn't endless anymore. Yes, suddenly it's like cold and yes. everything is, the warmth is kind of gone. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's winter and the, the love has burned out. Yes, and especially in the last, um, the last, uh, the scene, the last scenes that Ilio and Oliver has together when they go to the village, when they go on their own separate holiday, mm-hmm. that's when you kind of feel like, Oh, this is so nice, but you also know that okay, this is about to end. Yeah. yeah. Very soon. Very soon they will have to confront the sorrow about separating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that uh, yeah. Just... I think those like long scenes to me, sort of like the stretched out when they're just kind of like observing each other or Elio's just off doing something, riding his bike, playing guitar, swimming or whatever. Mm. I think that kind of emphasizes the almost the stress of how little time they have together because mm-hmm. i yeah, think at least when i was long. watching it yeah i'm like thinking like oh like when i remember watching it like as if i was living the situation i was like oh well it's been two weeks and he only has four weeks left like 
what are they going to do? Yeah. yeah. Time is stressful. The passage time of time is stressful. Yeah, is it is stressful. Yeah. I think there's a good chunk of stuff to talk about here and talk about the production of the film, which I thought was pretty interesting and a lot longer than I realized. Are you ready? We are ready. Yes. Okay. Great. Let me get ready. Okay. So the production of this film actually dates all the way back to 2008. Peter mm. Spears and Howard Rosenman, who are producers of the film, read a galley proof of Andre Asman, who is the author of the book. And also galley proof is basically just a version of the book that exists before it's published. So mm-hmm. the Call Me By Your Name book is published in 2007, and they immediately optioned the screenwrites before its publication even. So before the film came out, they were like, we're going to make a film about this. Um, and they described the the writing and the setting as divine, that it was just the, like the perfect book and it, will, it is and will make a great film. So they immediately invited James Ivory, who's a very accomplished screenwriter and author um, to write and direct and produce the film. Fun fact about James Ivory that I did not know, he is born in 1928. Hmm. Oh, he is still very much alive. So he would have been 90 when he wrote this film. Oh, good for him. Very old and very small. Oh, another fun fact about James Ivory. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he also wrote this really great kind of very kind of similar to Call Me By Your Name. He wrote this movie, Maurice, which is yeah. uh, a Hugh Grant film with this like other ginger generic looking British actor. And they, it's also <laughs> in the same way that you're talking about Martin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's kind of the same way that there's like, which is something that I was also going to, oh God, I'm like derailing myself with my own thoughts. Sorry. Um, no, it's me. I'm derailing myself. Um, that Maurice is more of, of like the sensuality of a connection rather than the sexuality, which I think is exactly what this coin by your name is really. It's about like a, the sensual emotional connection between people rather than just like broke about Mac. Brokeback Mountain, uh, <laughs> fucking in the butthole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> straight out of <laughs> yeah, like save a horse, ride a cowboy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's more about like the the nuance of the situation, which I think James Ivory really kind of gets, and that's what makes him such a great uh, screenwriter. However, so this was 2008 when he was brought on, but after meeting with several directors and different writers, because this was just before James Ivory signed on to be the screenwriter, the project ended up in development hell Mm. due to basically they scheduled the film to be during summer, the filming during summer and also in Italy, in Crema. And no one could make that work because everyone was busy. Ah, the producers eventually contacted Luca Guadagnino, who initially declined due to being busy. Um, however, he lives in Crema. He lives in northern Italy. And he was then hired as a 
location consultant for the film. Uh, so that was like his uh, role. But he was still very involved in sort of the, the production. And then he suggested to James Ivory that they co-direct. And then James Ivory agreed on the condition that he wrote the script. So the screenwriting process was a collaboration really between Ivory, Guadagnino and Walter Fasano, who is a like longtime collaborator and friend and editor of all of his Guadagnino's films. And this, uh, all of this writing took place between um, Crema in Guadagnino's kitchen, they very specifically mentioned, um, New York City and James Ivory's house, which I think is in England. So the screen, screenplay was completed in 2015. Uh, Andre Asman, the author of the book, approved and said that they have done better than the book, which I'm sure is very high oh. praise. Um, so the reason that the drive for, because the screenplay was, you, you know, like if they aren't getting anywhere with the film, uh, with production, filming, anything, the reason that they drove for finishing the screenplay was because they wanted to secure as much funding as possible. And by having a completed screenplay, then they could do that. So they got, um, yeah, like funding from quite big kind of European uh, film funding people. But I also, I just noted that the, the main funder was from Frenesi Film Company, which is an Italian film company that is owned by Luca Guadagnino. So... Of course, they got money from that because it's his own movie. Um, yeah. So then, interestingly, the backers of the film said that the initial costs of the estimate uh, for the film was way too much, and the production uh, budget was reduced from 12 million US dollars to 3.4, and the filming schedule was cut from 12 weeks to five. This then led to James Ivory stepping down from, a, from the direction role in 2016, leaving Guadagnino to direct the film alone. According to James Ivory, the financiers of uh, Memento Films International did not want two directors involved because they thought that it would make the, the process awkward and make the film like take a lot longer to be made and that it would look terrible if there was fights and so on. But Guadagnino then said that he actually thinks that the reason that they got shot down with all of these big budget things is because James Ivory's version of the film was like much more costly and basically a different film that would have been way too expensive to make. Um, he then wrote the screenplay, obviously, and sold the rights to Guadagnino. But basically, the vision that James Ivory had for this film was like um, much larger sets, much like more famous actors and mm -hmm. much more graphic sex scenes. He was like really pushing for that side of the film to be shown. Whereas mm -hmm. Guadagnino's, if you've like followed his work, he has two films before this as well, which kind of fit a trilogy um, of this like sensual side. But James Ivory was said he was disappointed actually uh, by the outcome of the film that it didn't have like Fucking and sucking. <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't need it. It doesn't need it. No, it no, absolutely like not. an erotic film without needing to. It communicates yeah. the desire and all that yeah. stuff, the feelings of longing. It doesn't need graphic sex to no. tell its story. It's sensual. It doesn't. It's sensual. Like... It's very sensual. Yeah. yeah. 
It is. Yeah. Um, Guadagnino curated the soundtrack of the movie by himself. And he did a great job because this film has oh. a banging soundtrack. The soundtrack is yeah. amazing. <laughs> I have the CD, actually. I yeah. have the vinyl. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Up. Um, and then this kind of last fact about the production, which I just thought was like a nice little tidbit, is that the film is dedicated to the late Bill Paxton, who mm-hmm. was a dear friend of Guadagnino and visited the set in Crema before his death in February 2017. Really? Huh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, that's so sweet. Or Bill Paxton. He was a very good actor. Love him in Twister. That's one of my favorite films. Love him in Aliens. Yeah, so good. He directed, he directed a very good film called Frailty, which is mm. very good if you haven't seen it. Mm. Horror movie with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, that oh. sounds right up my alley. Why haven't <laughs> yeah. I seen this? Very good. Yeah, I just thought that was like a much more in-depth than because I always thought this film was sort of like indie and grassroots. But the, the production was basically 10 years. And this was even before they'd even like really discussed actors or anything. This whole yeah. to and fro with the budget and everything and the writing. They were waiting for Timothy Chalamet. That's they like, they please were. let him waiting. He just needs to turn 18. <laughs> <laughs> Speak, um, <clears throat> we we of that. see him rapping. <laughs> turn eighteen, I, please. I do. Uh, I do have a point on that, Carolina. If you yes. if you want to hear about it, I do. So, when it came to the casting of the film, James Ivory was gunning, running, praying, preaching for Shia LaBeouf to no! play the role. Oh God! To play that would the role never have worked. James Ivory really thought that Shia LaBeouf just had like the most wonderful nuance and delivered a great performance, and he was dead set on having him be in the film. Uh, but then, following an interview in 2016, James Ivory very sadly said that Shia LaBeouf was no longer involved in the process of the film. And that although he got along very well with Shia LaBeouf, the production company said that he was unsuitable due to his, quote unquote, various troubles. Oh, hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to picture Shia LaBeouf in this film. No. God. No. <laughs> oh, oh thank, thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. James Ivory has some, like, He's, you know, very accomplished. He is a thousand years old and he's done well to keep up with the times and stuff. But he like, just like from what I was reading, he was like really gunning for this to be like an explicit 18 film and for Shia LaBeouf to be at the helm of it. Like despite all of the kind of, I guess, negative connotation for it. He was just like, this is my vision. I I didn't. uh, Does the book have explicit sex scenes? I was gonna say I don't really remember no, the book I don't being think so. that explicit as well. It's it's still like that longing. It it has a very intimate scene where Elio is admiring Oliver's shit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, but yeah. but it's this it's not explicit like that. No, At it, least I can't remember it being being that way. It's very much the like uh, beginning of Mamma Mia. With uh, he's like, then he came back to the island and dot dot dot. 
<laughs> That's what the book is like. You got a more Mia plug in there. Yeah. yeah. I support it. It's been on my mind recently. It's always on my mind. Yeah. Great film. Great film. Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of then finding a new person to take the role of Oliver, Guadagnino had been very impressed by Army Hammer's performance in David Fincher's 2010 The Social Network, describing him as a sophisticated actor with a great range. Hammer almost, and I said kind of ironically, turned down the role because it contained nudity. And he said that there was much in the film that he had never done before. And then I wrote despite having played a gay man twice in films. Huh. So, what, uh, yeah. Where did he play? Uh, some kind of like political drama. He played a gay person in that. And another film. And oh, he just had to wow. believe me. I guess so. I can. Yeah. I have Google right here, though. I can very... Uh, no, 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 no. I can fact check you very quickly. Fact check. You shouldn't. <laughs> Um, no, but I think I think he's really good in the film, though. I think he's uh, yeah, I he's think a good choice yeah. for the role, and I think he communi- He's very charming in the role, and he he he, is. he symbolizes a lot of you know. Um, I mean, you can understand why Elio gets smitten by him because he's he's like this. He's almost like a Greek figure, almost like the statues they yeah. study. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, he he is. That's definitely the vibe they went for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess in the book he's younger, right? He was he's twenty. He's supposed to be twenty four years old. Twenty four, or am I misremembering? Yeah, and yeah, Army Hammer was like twenty eight or twenty nine, and he doesn't yeah. look twenty four. No, but yeah. <laughs> I think I think it kind of works either way. Even though it's the, there's a bigger age gap, at least they look older. Uh, Army Hammer yeah. looks older than what he's supposed to be, but it, it yeah. kind of works because the whole point is Elio being innocent and and discovering all these things about himself for the first time mm-hmm. whereas the guy he falls in love with has been around the block and he has learned some lessons and he's probably mm-hmm. also learned how to i don't know control his feelings better and and be more like strategic um, yeah. especially towards the end when he um we don't know if he's bisexual or if he's gay but it, it certainly seems like he acknowledges the love that they had and and mm-hmm. it's presented like like he's, it's more like a strategic choice that he just cho- chooses to be with a, to marry a girl towards the end. It, is, mm. it was certainly easier in the eighties, I imagine. Definitely, yeah, 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 for True sure. That. So I, th- I think it works the the um, difference between them because it 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 it's, it uh, amplifies their the the stages of life they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So speaking of our leading lady elio <laughs> in 2013 so i i think timothy is two years older than me i think so what would mean that he's 27 i guess i'm 25 this year so but i'm just thinking uh, he was he was introduced to guadagnino when he was so 2013 so i guess he would have been about 16. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So he was introduced um, and Guadagnino was immediately drawn to this actor. Incidentally, Chalamet had already read Call Me By Your Name. And yep, he was immediately snatched up, picked for the film. And yeah, upon his arrival to Italy, he began 
piano, guitar, Italian, and German lessons to prepare for his role as his character. Obviously, already speaking French, being a dual citizen of America and France. Yeah, but before the film began, this is I've already kind of touched on this. Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer signed contracts which prohibited the film from showing them with full frontal nudity. Yeah, and Ivory, like I said, his original screenplay contained quite a lot of nudity. He was dismayed by the notion. He criticized what he saw as an American attitude, saying, nobody seems to care that much or be shocked about a totally naked woman. It's men. Guadagnino picked uh, the actors based on their performances and chemistry rather than on their sexuality. He said, Mm -hmm. the idea that you have to cast someone who has a certain set of skills and worse, a certain gender identity in any role, that's oppressive to me. Yeah, but then those are our, our two boys in this film. That's how well, they came to be. He, Timothy is also really, really good in it, and he, he is, yeah, he he must have been like twenty one or something when they started shooting twenty twenty or twenty one, I guess. I think so. Yeah, twenty sixteen, yeah. I guess. So, and he looks younger. He looks yeah. like he could pass for seventeen. Yeah. They knew what they were doing with casting. They knew what they were doing. And I think I think that is important actually because Hollywood tends to tends to cast a lot older yeah. actors in young roles. <sighs> and when the whole point of the film being a coming of age film where the character is supposed to be young and discovering his sexuality and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. It doesn't really make sense when the actor is twenty five or twenty six years old and looks like that way. It becomes yeah. a, it becomes a more powerful film, I think, when when they mm-hmm. choose someone who's actually who looks the part. Yeah. I wish yeah, it Netflix feels would more... get that memo. Oh yeah. Hmm? <laughs> I wish that Netflix would get that memo of uh, hiring people who are actually the age of their characters. <laughs> then there's laws about sex scenes, and you know, Hollywood. <laughs> then yeah, it's basically no, it, children it... having their sex, like Euphoria. Hello, sixteen-year-olds, pounding. Yeah, but those are a lot older, aren't they? Or, or did yeah, they, they are. big time? Yeah, Zendaya like... is forty. What? She's <laughs> <laughs> twenty-six, which means she's no. one year too old to be in Leonardo DiCaprio's. No, uh, <laughs> that's true. Kind of sad. Yeah, you will have nothing to do with her anymore. No. Yeah. Okay, I've interrupted but... you a bunch of times. Please continue. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> no, but it, it feels a lot more realistic when Elio looks 17. And if you kind of feel a lot more, more for him because he looks so young and so like hopeful in a way about the relationship. But yeah, yeah it's like, well, Oliver is older and a bit more like... The fact that he also looks older than 24 makes it seem like he, he knows more how, how this is going to go in a yeah. way. Hmm. He, he knows and he, he, he's capable of dealing with it. While Oliver has that doughy-eyed optimism and um, the naive Ilio. love of... Mm. Oh, sorry, Ilio has <laughs> uh, the, naive, the, the naive and easy kind of love you experience when you're young and you kind of yeah. let your dreams run away with you. Yeah. Mm. So... No, they they definitely knew to cast someone who looked younger, but it's also mm. it, it it what's great about casting Timothy Chalamet because he yeah he fits the part uh, mm. yeah, and it doesn't really feel that um, 
leering. I mean, even though it shows Timothy <laughs> in various states of uh, stages of undress towards throughout the film, it doesn't feel like the camera is leering. And, no. and there's, um, you know, you don't feel like this is a horny director behind the camera who just wants <laughs> to shoot as much as possible of this uh, mm-hmm. young guy in undressed. It, it feels very natural and it feels very appropriate yeah. to the story and mm-hmm. the vibe the movie is going for. Yeah, it does. It catches like how romantic it is. Yes. So mm-hmm. perfectly. The, the romance of the situation and the romance of the, of the setting. He does such a mm. good way of like establishing that through the landscape and yeah. Uh, for, oh, I guess the score is 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 not a score because it's just um, different classical tracks that um, Guadagnino selected. But even through that, like each selected kind of classical music piece, it also is adding to this sort of like almost like whimsy of the of the place that they are. Yeah, but we yeah, also definitely. have the fantastic mystery of love and Sufjan Stevens and his yeah. his music that yeah yeah I was gonna say he, the music that he provided to the film is is just magical it's so so mm-hmm. good yeah. and it fits the music it fits the the film so well um and also but but Luca Guadagnino's um, uh, ear for music is very good in general yeah. like he, he is very good at choosing soundtracks for his films like he chooses a few 80s tunes Mm-hmm. In this film, where Army Hammer has some very weird dance moves, yeah, um, to love it, my it's, it's, yeah, but it's really, yeah. really good, really good moment moment yeah. both of the times at the dance. One at the 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 club, I guess, and then one when he dances below the church. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's it fits the movie uh, the movie really nice. Mm-hmm. And he's always been good. in all the movies I've seen of uh, Guadagnino's uh, films. He's been really good at choosing music mm-hmm. for his films mm-hmm. i'm like biting my tongue not talking about suspiria <laughs> <laughs> well i'll tell you what it was a very very good remake i'm not i, so, I yeah. like the original one but i i think he did a really good job at making it something completely different yeah and still retaining the vibe mm-hmm. i'm not going to talk about it because i <laughs> won't stop but <laughs> with, um, but, yeah, moving on to the next topic. Yeah, but before, since we were talking <laughs> about the actors, we have to mention yeah. the parents, especially oh, yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg. Yes, who plays the father. He is he's good in everything he's in, but mm-hmm. he's really good in this one. Men but... in Black Three. <laughs> hmm? Men in Black Three. Yeah, but he he elevates Men in Black Three. He's a highlight in Men in Black Three. True that. But no, he's great in this film. The he, uh, yeah, he plays such a nuanced and loving, caring role. It, mm-hmm. does, like yeah. the the scene where he's like consoling Elio towards the end of the film, talking about like the different kinds of love that people have is just so. It's, it's so it's, wow. It's one of the great. Yeah, it's a really, really good monologue that could have mm-hmm. easily. One part I like about it is that throughout the film. It depends on how used you are to watching these types of films, but it's very easy to think that at some point, since you're watching a movie about um, uh, queer love or two gay people falling in love, you you will get that inevitable coming out scene where he has to come yeah. out to his parents, and you're you're let, the movie lets you it lets you in on the fact that the mom probably knows very early, mm-hmm. but you're not sure about the father. He's he's a little bit more distant. 
what he knows and doesn't know. And then, yeah, I at least I remember I expected when Elio sits down with his father towards the end of the film that there, he was going to like come clean and then come out to his father. Mm-hmm. And then instead, the father just holds that beautiful monologue where he doesn't force him to say anything. He just uh, he just comments on what he's seen, and we realize mm-hmm. that he knows a lot more than what he's than what we've been thinking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just a it's, it's it's a great great monologue, and I'm sure that a lot of um, gay kids out there, sadly, would have wanted their father to give them that monologue yeah. <laughs> instead of what they actually got. So I think I think that part hits hard for a lot of people mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's so beautiful and it's just so yeah. beautifully done it's yeah. it is it's really really good and wonderfully delivered by both actors yeah yes yeah it really holds that moment their performances you feel so captivated and kept mm-hmm. in that scene yeah yeah and it hits at a point in the film where you need it because you've just oh, been yeah. hit by sadness mm-hmm. yeah and then you get that cradle warmth of, from yeah. the father. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we touched on it. We've mentioned it quite a lot. There's talking about the age gap of the of the two characters, and that this was more of a. I just understood it as something to be kind of people might comment on it, blah blah blah. But I didn't realize that it was a much uh, bigger comment on the film uh, in the kind of the public uh, and amongst the media. Mm-hmm. The film's depiction of a sexual relationship with an age disparity between these characters drew real big commentary and criticism, particularly and especially in the USA. Hmm. So here, the lowest legal age of consent is higher than that in Italy. So mm-hmm. I think it's 16 or 17 in Italy, and it's 18. No, it's in... 14. Okay. In Italy, it's 14. You, you would know. That yeah, I, I go down, <laughs> down there all the time. That's, uh, it's my no. favorite place. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, God. Anyway. I anyway. choose holiday destination based on no, the no, appendix no, stuff. No, 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 no. No, no. Don't worry, he's got to cut it away, Colin. He doesn't dare to put that in the podcast. I'm going to keep that in. I'm going to keep that in, Ben. <laughs> Oof. Maybe it's a good thing you quit your job in child protection service. <laughs> no com- comment. No comment. <laughs> no contest. Okay. So. Okay, but yeah, 14 and 18 in the US. Because US, they don't think their kids have sex until they're past 18. Yeah. But I also, okay, Carolina, in Bendik's defense, I'm sure that he has to know that for his previous job. In Italy? Sure. <laughs> Actually, I Googled I'm... it in preparation for this podcast. There I you come go. prepared. There you go. There you go. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So Elio, who is 17 and was portrayed by Timothy Chalamet, who was 21 at the time of the filming, while Oliver is 24, played by Hammer, who was then 31. He was 31? My math has failed me. Hmm. So this is, I'm not really sure why I picked this quote out, but Queer Eye host, Karamo Brown, criticized the movie as glorifying sexual assault and said, it looks like a grown man having sex with a little boy. 
author Cheyenne Montgomery said she was disturbed that one of the protagonists is portrayed as a boy and the other as a man, saying, Elio is portrayed very much as a child. He shaves off the peach fuzz on his face. He cuddles with his parents. His lines are often bratty and childlike, and he's being played as a sexy romantic partner to a character who's very much being portrayed as an adult. God, that's the whole point of the film. Why are they so stupid? It's, <laughs> the movie isn't trying to make you horny. The movie is trying to tell a story about a boy's first love. Physicians okay. Rene Sorrentino and Jack Turbin wrote in Psychiatric Times, this film is about sexual prediction. Oliver looks much older than his reported age of 24, while Elio looks like a very young 17-year-old. The power disparity in the relationship is clear. Elio is fragile and sexually naive. Oliver is experienced and directive in the relationship. Is it appropriate for a 24-year-old experienced in drinking to have sex with an inebriated, vomiting 17-year-old? A feature in The Advocate, which is an LGBT interest magazine, drew attention to the narrative depicting heterosexual relationships with similar or greater age gaps. So they were kind of defending it in a way. And they used the example of uh, Gone with the Wind to throw it back a good 100 years or something. (laughs) Uh, Where Scarlett, the main character, is a teenager when she then meets the 33-year-old Rhett. And then their relationship goes mm-hmm. from there, basically. But yeah, a lot more, uh, a lot more, kind of fight back against the that depiction of that, particularly just in the American press. <laughs> but um, <laughs> everyone else, but was, have... yeah, everyone else was fine with it in the yeah. press. Yeah, because yeah. I have well, seen a lot of. <laughs> I have seen a lot about it on social media. So like, oh, if you like call me by your name, I don't trust you because of the age gap. Uh, It's it's a a thing. Um, But I don't know, isn't the age gap kind of the point of the movie? It is. It's the point of the (laughs) film. And like I said, the movie isn't trying to turn you on. You're You're not supposed to get turned on. You're just supposed to what you're supposed to watch the story about a 17 uh, year old who who experiences love and heartbreak for the first time that's mm-hmm. the whole point of the film his his coming of age and coming of age movies has been a thing since the dawn of time yeah, yeah. and in i can't remember people don't care when it's straight relationships i mean kubrick made lolita in in 1962 mm. or something that in i don't i can't remember there being any con there was some probably surrounding the novel but I mean, it's probably just because it's a gay relationship. I mean, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, it also fits with the time. I, I think. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. don't think a queer seventeen-year-old could just walk out on the street and find another queer seventeen-year-old. Exactly. That True that. It was yeah. probably a lot of these types of age gap relationships during that time. So it's, it 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 fits the time. And it's yeah. not like that has gone away. I mean, there's still age gap. I'm I'm not sure if there are more age gaps. If age gap is more common in g- g- queer relationships, or if it's uh, more common in straight relationships, there are certainly a lot of old white men with twenty-year-old uh, yeah, uh, wives. Yep. Uh, also yeah. in the gay community. I mean, didn't Jan Thomas? Didn't he? Uh, his boyfriend was like nineteen, and he was forty-five. Yes. <laughs> 
something like that. The media that. was just like, oh, they're so happy together. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> was that his old boyfriend, Christopher? <laughs> yeah, was that Christopher, the, the yeah. one they did that comic, uh, that uh, cartoon on? Iconic. Um, TV show history, amazing. But yeah, I I also think Jan Thomas knew, not gonna say this is true, but I think his new boyfriend is also a lot younger. Yeah. So, and it's not like those boyfriends hasn't been, they don't know how to consent. And I, when I watched Call Me By Your Name, I was looking for, when I rewatched it on Monday, I was like looking, is there any like signs of grooming? Is this like, is there any way this can be, be interpreted as creepy in? with new eyes, but I, I didn't yeah. really see it. I didn't see anything in Elio that made, portrayed him as this weak character that made Oliver prey on prey upon him. It, it felt no. very natural. If it, he, he was 17, he knows what he's doing. He's falling in love. He's naive. He's blah, blah, blah. But he's not, he's certainly not being groomed or abused. No, I don't think no. so. But you could also argue like the naiveness is, it's easy to groom someone who is naive. So yeah. one could argue that uh, to not completely dismiss the age gap thing, but it's, yeah. You, yeah, you can quite, and, and I guess this is what maybe is the weakness with Army Hammer's age, because the fact that he's 31 and not 24, like the character in the book, mm. makes it easier to criticize him for, okay, even though he's supposed to be 24 in the film, yeah, you, but he, still he doesn't looks, look like that. He no. looks 30. Yeah. And it, so it's easier to criticize him for, okay, but why on earth are you choosing to go after this 17-year-old boy? Yeah. Uh, why can't you find someone else? And I guess maybe it's not that easy in the Italian countryside, but <laughs> maybe he could just stay celibate for that summer, you know? It, it's just a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's, just yeah. weeks. it's not hurting but, anyone. <laughs> but you know but, they end up falling in love and it seems it's, it's yeah. genuine in the movie it's portrayed as genuine what they have it's not like he's preying on him or, or anything should we talk about the the actual ending when he goes into oh, the yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, because I think yeah. that is it's, it's one got, of those you, yeah. you want to do what I would just got only like two points after this but I think that's a good time to talk about the ending go for it Bendik <laughs> okay, no, I just wanted to, I, I want you guys to comment on as well, but I think that it's just one of those perfect endings, like one of those few few moments when you watch a film and you think as it ends, it's just perfect. Yeah. This is exactly where it should end. This is this is great. And that's it's almost what makes the whole movie for me, is that mm -hmm. scene where he sits down, the music starts, and he you just watch him through the credits, just processing mm -hmm. grief. He processes, he keeps the, he, he listens to his father, he keeps the pain and he feels the pain. And then he, he kind of works himself through it. And at the end, before the movie fades to black, you, you see some optimism and a smile. You see kind of that he, yeah, he's still sad, but he, he knows that this could be the start of something good and that he's mm -hmm. learned something about himself that he will mm. bring with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's a really, really good scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it it truly is one of those rare, perfect endings to a film. I feel mm. like with a lot of films, you can look at the ending and be like, "Oh, they could have done this different. They could have done this instead." But with Colin Byrne names, like, yes, 
this this is it this is perfect this is what i wanted i'm yeah. crying my eyes out but <laughs> it's what yeah, i wanted i love the the conversation that they have on their phone is that like what it would have been five or six months after the events of the film and stuff that like it almost could have felt like you've had enough time to kind of sit there and stew and think about it that Mm -hmm. it might not have been as grand and beautiful as Elio would have imagined it in his head because that's his first love first expectation of something that it was this like big tumultuous grand love and then just to have Oliver like kind of validate it and confirm it still by saying that he remembers everything and Mm -hmm. I can imagine that it doesn't make the fact that Oliver announces that he is engaged to be married to a woman yeah kind of like validating his his feeling and his understanding that what they had was like something really real and then like you say Bendik then he has the time to sort of sit with that and realize that like you know it sucks that what has happened has happened and they're apart and that's sad but you can still hold this mm. perfect endless summer in your mind as like a perfect and wonderful experience of learning who you are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that is a part of what he has to learn. I mean, like it's, it's especially when you're young and when you, when you, when you fall in love or have crushes for the first time, you, you, it's easy for you to, you have that, you, ha- you, your brain runs away with you and you, you, yeah. imagine a whole life with that person in 30 mm-hmm. seconds give or take and you there's a lot it's it's perfect love it's there's no consequences to it it's just in your mind it's just perfect and yeah. you start to believe almost that you are meant to be together mm-hmm. and that's probably yeah. what Elio thinks during that summer that they're meant to be together and that they're supposed to have this happy life together and when he's confronted by the stark reality of the times and of the fact that Oliver isn't a necessarily the perfect guy he he had that romance with then he he gets that hard dose of reality mm-hmm. but it's still kind of positive that he okay he processes yeah. that now he le- he's he's wiser he knows more the next time he goes into a similar thing yeah yeah so i think we have some like post film things to talk about now as we wrap up this wonderful episode um this film garnered huge success. It like made, I didn't write down exactly how much money it made, but it made a lot more than its initial budget, which of only three, 3.4 mil, uh, million. And it made like way more than that. So mm-hmm. it did very well. Uh, it made and had a huge international fan base during like the festival run. People were coming from all around the world just to see this film. Um, and in 2018, uh, an author called Bob Morell published a book which collected stories from fans all around the world who came to see this film and what the film like meant to them as well, which I think is really special. And it's something that even sits with a lot of people now and stuff. So it would have meant a lot of, um, it would have meant a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. My fun, interesting point was by early 2018, the film had attracted a following in China amongst heterosexual women who perceived it as a Western, quote-unquote, boys' love romance. 
uh, evidenced by its popularity on the Chinese social network and media database, Duban. And I just, as I was saying to Caroline before we started recording, I kind of knew this as well, because there was, after I saw the film, I was like kind of also obsessed with it in a way. And I followed this account of this woman who paints only like stills from the movie. And she's Chinese, I found out. She is a Chinese heterosexual woman. <laughs> <laughs> she is one of these, uh, yeah, which I just think is like, I mean, wonderful that they can engage in, uh, I guess uh, we don't necessarily always think as China is the most open country. Um, but I guess it's kind of, uh, it's nice that uh, they're through this Western boy love, they can enjoy any gender and sexuality <laughs> expression. How yeah. lovely. Even you can enjoy love under a dictatorship. <laughs> I yeah. have to say I am curious if they have read Dick Fight Island. <laughs> mm. you, like... you, you were going to get it in there. We're, yeah. we're no, <laughs> also a recommendation, Dick Fight Island. No, but it, it's, uh, I believe, a very similar audience. It sounds like it's a similar audience with Dick Fight Island because there is a lot of women who read Dick Fight Island. So it, it feels like a, it, it's a thing. I believe mm. it's a thing. Yeah. And Dick Fight Island is a manga, correct? Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like homoerotic content specifically yeah. for heterosexual women. Yeah. I guess. And well, that's just, it's nice. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, truly. Them. Yeah. Um, also during the, the filming, so the filming was uh, in, in Crema in North Italy, uh, an Italian fan published the coordinates of the filming location and then it was flocked with fans. And now the city of Crema offers official Call Me By Your Name tours. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I want to go there. I really want to go yeah. there. It's beautiful. <laughs> so as we said, the film uh, was a huge hit. Oscar nominations, Golden Globes, BAFTAs, da 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 da. Everyone loved it. Mm-hmm. We don't need to talk about it. Everyone knows. Um, so, following the success of the film, there was clearly a lot of interest by executives and those involved in the film in having a sequel. Yeah. Um, and it really seems like it was just destined to head into this um, production hell situation once again. Everyone seemed to have a lot of ideas mm-hmm. um, coming from the time period that it would be set in or the topics that would be discussed. Um, say that, for example, waiting until Timothy Chalamet was 26 and setting it after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Elio hiding his sexuality, Oliver married with children. But it seems that like all of these ideas kind of just ran and ran and ran and nothing mm-hmm. kind of uh, concrete happened. Uh, Army Hammer in an interview said that it will definitely happen because a lot of people <laughs> want it to happen. Um, although James Ivory said that he would not be joining and he even stated that Andre Asterman also thought that it was a bad idea. But Andre Asterman at the time was working with Luca Guadagnino developing an idea for it because he was just about to release the sequel to Call Me By Your Name, Find Me. So James Ivory mm-hmm. was spouting a lot of hateful shit, apparently. He didn't, he didn't get for... his dicks on screen, so he, he had to be a dick about it. Yeah. He didn't get his porn. No. 
but I'm sure it exists. I'm sure you can find it. <laughs> um, it was then suggested that the film would take on a similar approach to Rink- Richard Linklater's 2014 film Boyhood and that it would add Dakota Johnson to the cast to play Oliver's wife. Uh, Dakota Johnson has worked with Luque Guadagnino many times. And I also noted that Dakota Johnson and Army Hammer have starred in the worst film that I've ever seen, Wounds, together on Netflix. Yeah. Um, so if you want any idea of what kind of chemistry those two could have, go watch the <laughs> film. Some of the worst writing that I've ever seen in any film ever. So, oh. yeah. So it was like all of these ideas that they were going to wait until they were the age of the characters in the book, which was like Elio being late 30s, Oliver being in his 50s, and they reconnect, which I think is what happens in the book. I haven't read it. I, th- I thought the book uh, yeah. was mostly about the, the father's old romance on a train or something. He talks to, I read parts of it, if I remember correctly, he talks to someone about his like old love on the yeah. train while going to Rome, I think, to meet mm-hmm. Elio. And Oliver yeah. is also there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But, dun dun dun. Even in 2020, there were still pre-production plans being made mm-hmm. until a series of allegations against Army Hammer of emotional abuse and cannibalistic fetishism in early 2021 resulted in his removal from nearly all upcoming projects. And then this added raising doubts to the prospects of there being a sequel. But actually, Michael Stuhlberg said that he hopes that the film will still be made. In May 2021, Guadagnino, despite being super excited by the idea of a sequel, said in an interview with Deadline that a sequel was no longer in his priorities. He hinted that beyond the complications related to Hammer's scandal, Charlemagne himself would be very busy with other films in the near future, which led him to put the project aside. Hmm. Well, he's doing uh, he's doing uh, an adaptation of the new... Um... Brett Easton Ellis novel, Shards, yeah. I think, mm. the author of American Psycho. I really want to read it. It's on my it's next on my list. But he's American uh, Psycho? No, I've read American Psycho, but the author, oh. Brett Easton Ellis, he yeah. released a new novel this year called Shards. And Luca Guadalino has announced that's gonna be his next project, I think. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's a serial killer story. Hell Ooh. yeah. Mm. But yeah, that's yeah, the I, that's the situation yeah. with the sequel. Hmm. Well, I, I don't think we need it. I think I don't want to see a sequel. I don't want. It's so difficult to to do it right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think the power from the this movie, Call Me by Your Name, stems from the fact that they probably won't get together, mm. and that's yeah. a lesson that a lot of people have. A lot of us will learn during the course mm. of our life. And to ruin that by, I don't know how the the second movie would have ended, but if it would have, I'm sure it would have ended with them getting together or something, so as to not repeat mm. the theme of the first one. Mm. I don't know. Or they maybe could have it was before trilogy, kind of. Yeah, before trilogy is one of the few who actually did it correctly. Like the mm-hmm. last before before midnight, actually examines love in a in a real 
real life and you get the hard dose of reality after two movies that kind of glamorizes love mm-hmm. and if they done that maybe but i i don't i don't think i want to see them get get together i think the whole yeah. point is yeah. that elio learns his lesson and then moves on quite mm-hmm. an vision actually for for the sequel is that like in whatever age it takes place for the for the character value that he would be like closeted in the 90s mm-hmm. that was his kind of idea for the film aside from like the um the book hmm. well i'm sure he, he could have done it because he's a really good director yeah. he is and so far he hasn't made a bad film at least not what what i've seen mm-hmm. I well, I've like only seen Suspiria and Bones and All, but I liked Bones and All. I thought, even even yeah, though it, it felt a little good. bit like Call Me by Your Name, too, uh, it's it was still really yeah. nice. A good they film. They really amped up the cannibalism, and if if we got the cannibalists, yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they also, I mean, he he he's playing on the fact that you'll recognize the Call Me by Your Name DNA because he casts the same actors. I mean, Michael Stuhlbarg pops up in Bones and All in a very Mm. very creepy role completely different from the warm father he plays yeah. <laughs> yeah just like I made peace with Armaham being a cannibal <laughs> well I made peace with Mel Gibson I will always love Mel Gibson despite he's being a horrible person in real life most likely yeah. I will love him in his films I made peace with that mm-hmm. I can go on record and say I will always be a fan of Mel Gibson in movies Army Hammer couldn't, like, I don't think that I would be in danger because I don't think that I would be very good to eat. You would be very bony. Exactly. He also allegedly killed someone, though. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Well, rich <laughs> people, they can. They can the rich they people can kill people. Yeah. 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 That that's the way I could have a PowerPoint presentation on this. Just saying. <laughs> you should. We can do a bonus episode where you can just talk about. Do it in this. the intro when you introduce "Call Me by Your Name." Just make it an hour where you have yes. a full yeah. PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. People I'm forget they're yeah. there for the movie. Carolina's <laughs> going to be on the next episode for her movie, but uh, she can just talk about that instead. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, People will listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Oh well, well I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thank, yeah, it's been really great. I think a great kickoff to the new season. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with editing this because I think we've been talking for like two hours plus. Two hours. (laughs) Oh, it's okay. You were were aiming for one hour. It's because I was tired. That's that's uh, it. Wasn't any any editing reason. It's because I felt really tired from work today, but. I, I feel energized. I had my tea yeah. before I did this, so oh, I'm good. That's good. Nice. Yeah, it's it not like anybody fun. in 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 the board will listen to this anyway, so it can go on as long as it wants. So exactly. True. Who are we so going to trash talk now? <laughs> Who can we? We can trash talk anyone. None of them will listen. Maybe Martin think, will listen. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, yeah, it's just you two, my mm-hmm. biggest fans. It's just yeah. yeah. Actually, Bendix Snapchat group is my biggest fan. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I have some friends, some friends who in solidarity listen, but they're from Venezuela, and mm-hmm. this episode is about gay content, and they don't like gay people in Venezuela, so they probably oh. won't listen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just call the episode like Rambo 
or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lure them in, lure them in, and I'll do that on the podcast. And I know in the Snapchat they'll say, "Talking mm. about Rambo, please go listen." Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks both uh, for being on the podcast again. It's been great. Love having you guys on. It's been fun. It's yeah, been really fun. Yeah, yeah. We finally did a podcast together, Bendik. Because like, yes. Yeah. The three of us. Wow. Yeah. It was so nice. It was. Yeah. And it you was... didn't cook up any snarky sexist comments I was expecting you to, but I did not. I yes. can behave. Yeah. Yeah. It's growing. It's growing. I'm growing as a person. It's yeah. been enlightening to be in the BFK board. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilfgeibern and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.